Uh, let me pray, and um, we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, you have not left us in the dark with who you are, who we are, and how our world works. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make uh, particular applications again today, uh, the things that I could never know uh, about um, these people, things I don't even know about my own heart, an application you might make to me uh, with this text. And so, Lord, do that work among us even now. In Christ's name, amen. I'm not much of a golfer, but um, I've been reading a book by Hank Haney. It's called The Big Miss. Uh, Hank Haney used to be Tiger Woods' golf coach for six years, and during those six years, Tiger absolutely slayed it. And the book, in many ways, is insightful about how uh, Tiger Woods operates and what makes him so great. Uh, but I think I'm struck by the most basic fact of their relationship, the relationship between Hank Haney and Tiger Woods, and it's this. It's the fact that Tiger Woods has a golf coach. I mean, the greatest golfer of all time, one of the most successful athletes in history, has a coach. You know, now basketball players, football players, baseball players, they have to have a coach. But when you play a solo sport, when you play golf, now they all do, but there's nothing requiring you to have a coach. And of all people who you would think doesn't need a coach, it would be Tiger Woods, wouldn't it? But he has one. Why? Well, it's because Tiger Woods knows there are things that he doesn't say, see about his golf swing. There's things that he needs to work on that would make him a better golfer. And so he pays this exorbitant amount of money for someone to point out his shortcomings. And I think that speaks to something that we all feel. We, we know there are things that we don't know and we want to know them. I mean, I've noticed that parents of toddlers want to hang out with people who have kids in school because they want to know, how did you think about education for your children? I don't think about that yet because they're at home with me all day. But I want to know, how, how do you talk to your school-age kids about sexuality and poverty and race, these tough issues? And then you have middle-aged people, and middle-aged people, they want to hang out with retirees. They want to know, what makes for a great retirement? What lessons have you learned? And then take your jobs. We want to learn more from people who have been doing the same thing longer than we have. I mean, I'll at least speak for myself. I find a deep longing within me to be around pastors who have been doing it longer than me, specifically church planners. And there's a writer that I read this week who had a mentor of sorts. And this writer, uh, his mentor had, uh, was leading a 360 review for him. And he goes and, and he gets all this feedback from his colleagues and from other superiors. And he gathers it all up and then he hands it to this writer and says, here's what I've learned about you. Here's what your colleagues and supervisors are saying. And here are some of the things that people wrote about this guy. He said um, he needs to dress better. He comes across as very sure of himself, mostly in a positive way, but not always. He stands and sits awkwardly. There's something about his head. He never really looks at you, and that puts people off. It creates unease, and he's got to change that. I'm afraid he's going to hit a learning ceiling because he doesn't listen. 
After a point, you can't teach yourself everything anymore. You've got to listen to the people who've been there, done it, solved the problem, discovered new ways. He's got to listen. Here's my favorite. His voice, his voice rhythms are too staccato. It's hard to listen to him for very long. I mean, it hurts even to hear these things, doesn't it? And you don't even know who this guy is. The guy's name's Aaron Wren. I barely know who the guy is. And I have a hard time listening to the feedback about a guy I don't know. How much harder would it be if you were the one hearing it? See, that's the thing about feedback. It's deeply personal. It's highly invasive. It's difficult to take in. But what Aaron Wren says is that this evaluation was the key to his career success. He wanted to change, and his company wanted to do whatever it took for him to make those changes. And see, I think deep down we want the same thing. That's why we're suckers for lists that say seven keys to a better life. Clicked on any of those this week? Four things you need to know about having a successful marriage. Seven things you need to know to get to retirement. I mean, all these kind of things. We love advice columns. We follow people on social media who are constantly dispensing their tips for life. Famous pastors are always doing segments called Ask Pastor. See, we're like Tiger Woods, kind of. We all know deep down there are things that we don't know, and if we did, our lives would be better. And those kinds of things, biblically speaking, are called wisdom. And it's a main theme in the book that we've been looking at these last few weeks, the book of James. And we've come to the second half of chapter 3 in James. And so let's read it together, starting with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his good works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. See, James starts out with a test there in verse 13. He gives us a test on how to identify the truly wise among you. Want to know the most wise person in the room is? He says, don't look for age. He says it has nothing to do with titles. And it's because he knows that you can be old and be unwise. He knows that you can have titles and degrees and not be wise. And so he lets us know in verse 13, and then again in 17, what exactly wisdom looks like. He gives us three things. Look at verse 13. He first says that wisdom is meek. Wisdom is meek. And to say that wisdom is meek, it would have raised the eyebrows of the original hearers. Humility to them, gentleness to them, meekness to them was not prized in the first century. It signaled weakness. It was the opposite of a strong, confident person. They saw meekness to be synonymous with cowardice or spinelessness or shyness or timidity or a peace at any cost attitude or being indecisive or being wishy-washy or 
just a wimpy niceness. That's what they thought meekness was about. And this is not Jesus' assessment of what it meant to be meek. He saw a benefit in being meek. He saw a strength that's wrapped up in meekness. I mean, he said so in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He said, blessed are those who are meek. And then in Matthew 11, he calls himself meek and lowly of heart. And then at the zenith of his popularity, and many thought he was the coming king, and he's riding into Jerusalem where the palace is, where many thought he was going to be the king, and he comes in not on a white stallion like other kings, but he comes in on a donkey, the meek one. And this is how Jesus shows his leadership. And so if this is how he does, then you know he's going to require this kind of meekness, this humility, this gentleness from those who seek to lead in his name. That's why we read these verses in the epistles. Here are just a few. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Another one. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. This is talking about pastors. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. There's a third one. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So clearly, meekness is expected from Christ's followers. It's no surprise then that it should be a key component of what it means to be wise. We have to see that this kind of meekness, this, this wisdom that is meek, it's cultivated. This meekness, this humility, this gentleness, these aren't personality traits that you either have or you don't. They're virtues. They're virtues that grow in the soil of one's soul, and it all starts with understanding our position as sinful creatures in relationship with a glorious and majestic God. See, somehow when you see your smallness in comparison to God's greatness, it takes the edges off. You begin to see that you're finite and fallen, that you have limitations and you're, you have failures, and it enables you to give an allowance for limitations and failures in others. Enables you to be kind in dealing with difficult people. So wisdom is meek. It's the first thing we learn about wisdom. The second thing we learn is that it's practical. I mean, the Bible nowhere places much value on knowledge that remains merely cerebral or creedal. According to the Bible, nothing is known until it also reshapes your life. And so for this reason, the way of wisdom is always the way of practical obedience. That's why in verse 13, James says you can know wisdom by one's conduct. So being wise, it's not about having superior knowledge. It's not about holding a particular view of wisdom. Wisdom's about action. 
See, wise people don't necessarily know what the future holds as, as some kind of fortune teller, but wise people instead, they know how to do the right thing as life comes their way. Wise people are able to connect their theology to their life circumstances in a way that makes sense. So wisdom is meek. Wisdom is practical, both in 13. And then in verse 17, you see it's pure. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 reads, Wisdom from above is first pure, then, there's how many things there are here, peaceable, gentle, he says it again, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Seven things. So the way that this verse is worded, it should be understood in such a way that the seven qualities listed after pure, they're just seven dimensions of what purity looks like. And when, when, it's, when James uses purity here, it's not so much talking about purity in the sense of being sinless. Purity here is the opposite of being distracted. See, to be distracted means that you have your attention on multiple things at one time, right? So to be pure then means to, have, to be singularly focused. It means to be committed. And when you're committed, then you'll be peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Kind of sounds like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? And we could do a series of messages on each of those seven things about what purity looks like, what commitment looks like. But I don't have time to go through each one, but I want to pull out one. I want to pull out one, that one that says in verse 17, open to reason. See, when you're fully committed to wisdom and not yourself, you know what happens? You can be persuaded. You're willing to defer. You can yield when yielding is possible because you're not committed to your idea as much as you are to wisdom. See, a great illustration of this is from Abraham Lincoln. See, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, he commands a transfer of a certain group of soldiers to a new location. And the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, he receives the order and he refuses to carry it out. He says that the president's making a very foolish decision. Lincoln hears of Edwin Stanton's refusal and Lincoln replies not with anger, but he says, if Stanton says it's foolish, it must be, for he is nearly always right. I'll see for myself. So Lincoln goes to Stanton and they talk and Lincoln sees that he was indeed wrong and, and that he was going to make a serious mistake and without hesitation, he withdraws his command. See, when you're committed to wisdom, you will yield, you will at times defer, you can be persuaded. So think about your theological commitments. Are you willing to be persuaded? How about in your marriage? Are you willing to be persuaded by your spouse? Are there things that just maybe, some blind spots that they see that you don't? Think about your job review. Is it possible that you need to ask for more feedback at work so that you can make some important gains? See, wisdom's open to reason. So as interested as James is in giving us a positive view of what wisdom is, he's also uh, interested in giving us a negative picture of what wisdom is not. 
That's why in verse 14, he says two things. He says that real wisdom is not equivalent to being harsh, be harshly zealous, nor is it selfish ambition. See that word in the ESV, verse 14, it says bitter jealousy. I like harsh zeal better. Some translations use envy. But regardless of your translation, all of them refer to a self-orientation that possesses things that aren't yours to possess. This kind, this idea of possession, it can carry with it a blind fanaticism. It can frequently form a group that withdraws from an organization, or in this case, the church, and it claims to have a corner on the truth. There's a rigidity about it. That's why they're called zealots. But for all their, these people who are, who are harshly zealous, for all their commitment to truth, what James says in verse 14 is that it's actually opposed to truth. Do you see that? See, when you're harshly zealous, it grasps rather than gives. And that's the opposite of grace. So wisdom is never harshly zealous, nor is it selfishly ambitious. That's the other characteristic James draws out here. And when you're selfishly ambitious, it's quick to the draw. It's ready to fight for your rights. It's easily threatened by others. And so it's very defensive. Why? Because when you're selfishly ambitious, you've acquired some sense of turf, some sense of property, and now you're trying to get more. So these people, the zealots and the ambitious, are they can at least in some cases, they can be described as, not all, but some, as type A personalities. Now, you might know the Enneagram, you might know Myers-Briggs, but they have a certain inside lingo about them, don't they? But what about the type A and type B? Everybody understands what that means, right? It's universally understood. These type A people, they're go-getters, they're driven, they're high energy, they're assertive. Our culture is a type A culture. So it gives a distinction that has a moral component about it to be type A. I mean, think about who we consider heroes in our culture. They're entrepreneurs, not poets. So the message is clear. Be zealous, be ambitious, and then you'll be righteous. If you're idle or passive or patient, you're not going to get anywhere. And so the logic of what James calls here wisdom that is earthly, wisdom that is from below, it's unspiritual. It's even demonic. It's the wisdom It's the kind of wisdom that comes natural to us. It's the wisdom that we observe day in and day out. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. And James says that the result of these kinds of wisdom, this this, this, this zealousness and this ambition is what we see in verse 16, and that is disorder in every kind of vile practice. And when James says disorder, he's not necessarily saying that the church needs to institute a bunch of policies. What he's saying is that there's disorder in relationships in the community. So anytime you see someone with a multitude of broken relationships around them that has left them in serious disorder, you found someone who's running on the logic of the wisdom from below. This kind of wisdom, the wisdom is this. Wisdom is not that. It's 
this black, white, either or way of talking about wisdom, it makes me very uncomfortable. I'm sure it does you too. But it is the way that Jesus talked. He did say there's a wide gate and a narrow gate. Jesus did say you could build your house on the rock or the sand. So you got to make a choice. Do you want to live by worldly wisdom, the kind that's marked by harsh zeal and selfish ambition, or do you want to live by the heavenly wisdom that's marked by humility and practicality and purity? And if you choose the latter, you got to ask the question, where do you get it? <laughs> where do I get this kind of wisdom? Well, I can tell you one thing, you're not going to find it within. It's not innate. You weren't born with it. It's got to come from outside of you. In fact, verse 17, James says that it comes down from above. It has a heavenly origin. It, it, it's got that kind of quality about it. In James 1.5, uh, James says that, that wisdom is a gift from God that has come down. It's come down not as a set of principles for successful living. It's come down not as a doctrinal statement to give assent to. It's come down not as a moral code to guide your behavior. It's come down as a person. And wisdom's always been thought of in a person. I mean, Proverbs chapter 8 says this. The Lord possessed me, meaning wisdom. The Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the firm, the skies above, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Wisdom as a person. Paul knows this text. Paul knows the book of Proverbs. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, he calls Jesus the wisdom of God. You begin to see Jesus. He lives out his meekness with practical obedience. You see him embody this single-minded purity of wisdom in his life. And when you see it, you begin to see this wisdom in 3D. You begin to see it not as an abstract concept. And brothers and sisters, this wisdom is attainable to me and to you. I know it's paradoxical. I mean, no one readily ascribes greatness to gentleness, meekness, and humility. But this kind of greatness, this wisdom that works, it works in broken hearts. It works with anxious minds. It works with rebellious children. And these kinds of conditions require wisdom. Wisdom from above. I watched a documentary uh, this week called The Saint of Second Chances. It's on Netflix. It just came out. And um, um, it's about a guy named Mike Beck. Uh, Mike Beck, he owned this minor league baseball team in Minnesota in the 90s. 
Mike Beck was the guy who made minor league baseball fun. If you ever been to a minor league baseball game, it's just pure entertainment. It has very little to do with baseball, usually. And I'll start with Mike Beck. So Mike Beck's famous for that, but he's also famous for the way in which he was a baseball owner. He was giving all kinds of people a chance that nobody else would. He was the first person to sign a female to a major league contract. She was a pitcher. She threw a killer breaking ball. Mike Beck, he signed a guy without legs. Mike Mike Beck signed former major leaguers that were into their 40s but wanted to keep playing baseball. But Mike Beck's most famous signing was Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry uh, had formerly, back when I was a kid, was probably considered the most dominant baseball player alive. Daryl Strawberry had fallen on bad luck. He had slipped, slipped into substance abuse. He had multiple run-ins with the law, but he still wanted to play. He was still in, in, in his mid-30s. He had some gas left in the tank. And so he tried out for 206 teams, and everybody turned me down, except Mike Vick. And so when he came to the team, Strawberry was dejected. He was hopeless. He was full of shame. And he was hoping that baseball once again would pull him out of the gutter. It had done it plenty of times before, but baseball wouldn't be what pulled Strawberry out of the gutter this time. This time it was a friendship. It was friendship with Dave Stevens. Dave Stevens, he was that legless outfielder. Dave didn't take himself too seriously. He certainly didn't take Daryl too seriously. He wasn't intimidated by Daryl's talent. He wasn't embarrassed by Daryl's mistakes. And according to Dave, the thing that they had in common is that they were both down on their luck. They both needed the same thing that Mike Veck was willing to give them, a chance. And so there's something about this friendship with Dave Stevens that jolted Strawberry from his self-importance, from his self-pity, and it gave him a fresh sense of how fun it is to play baseball. And here's what Strawberry said. He said, I realize I'm just not that darn important. He actually said darn. He said, I didn't want to be a superstar anymore. I just wanted to be. See, harsh zeal and selfish ambition would have never reached Daryl Strawberry. It took meekness. It took practical love. It took purity. And I bet that's what it took to get you to. See, Jesus comes to you, and he offers you a second chance, a third chance, an 83rd chance. He offers you that as the wisdom that comes from above, and he lives inside of you. It's him, the meek one, and he offers you this chance to attach your yoke to his, where you can learn this kind of humility. And when you learn this humility, it can become routine. It begins to change your heart. It begins to work wisdom into you so that it works itself out as habits that are invisible to you, but they're visibly beautiful to the world around you. Let's pray.